So as I said, we are in our third week of our Kingdom of God series. And this has been a four-week series that we're looking at. Why did Jesus speak so much about the kingdom of God? As a matter of fact, he said, that's my purpose. I'm here to speak of the kingdom of God. There's something that will happen for eternity. This place in which he will be king of kings and lord of lords. And so we've been looking through that. And so I just want you to know that we started two weeks ago kind of talking about this idea that, yes, we're a church, but the church is, again, only a vehicle that makes us all a part of the kingdom of God. The church is significant, and yet we're a part of something greater. And then, by the way, all the verses for today are on version. You can get that app, and if you look under events, you'll be able to find all the verses. When you get there, you're going to see how many scriptures we have to go through. Trust me, we'll make it through. I promise we're going to get to every one of them, all right? So here we go. Um, the other thing I would say to you, though, is last week we talked about the idea that we are sojourners, that we are exiles. Once we become children of God, this earth, this world, this America, this California, this new work is no longer our home. We have something far greater. Our eyes are above. We're putting our treasure where moth and rust do not destroy. We are in a place where he calls us a holy nation, a chosen people, a priesthood into his name. And so therefore, there should be something about us that we are desiring to get as many people to come on this journey with us towards this new kingdom. That's what we looked at last week. And you can go back and look at that message. Today, um, I want you to say that last week I made a comment. I want to back that up this week. I said, I think that... that Um, Jesus spoke of a lot of things, but I think what he spoke most about was the kingdom of God. And to back that up, I want us to look at Luke chapter 13, verse 18. In Luke chapter 13, verse 18, he says this, and he said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it? So what he's saying is he really wants them to grasp it. How do I tell you about this kingdom? How do I tell you about what's happening? What would I even compare it to? And what we find out is, He used parables, these stories that would give us glimpses into what the kingdom of God was like. And so again, he says, what is the kingdom of God like? Because he wants us to see something that is bigger and go, okay, what is this kingdom? What am I joining? What am I becoming a part of? What is the kingdom of God like? Now, what's about to happen is I'm going to share with you verses of the parables in which the phrase, the kingdom of God is like, comes up. And they're just going to kind of go through here. You'll see um, them kind of pop up on the screen. Uh, again, a, a mustard seed, or again, the woman who hid uh, the yeast and the flour, and, and, and that's one of them. And it goes on and on when we go through where Jesus would tell parables describing what the kingdom of God is like. It's a casting out a net, or the kingdom is like the master of his own home. Like, there is these times in which Jesus would tell these stories. Because again, if you had ears to hear, you would go, oh, that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's what's taking place. That's what's happening here. Because again, his desire is to have us go, wait a minute, I want to be a part of that kingdom. What am I signing up for? What could he compare it to? That's what he was trying to get across. So in doing so, I I want us to see that we're not going to go through all those parables. I'm going to take a few of them and talk about, but we want to understand what is the kingdom of God like. Now, I'm going to read through fairly quickly this one uh, to get to something, and then I'm going to come back to it at the very end. You have to uh, follow what we're going to do here. This is Mark 4, 30 through 33. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable— shall we use for it? 
It is like a grain of mustard, of mustard seed, which, when sown on, on the ground, is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. But this is where I want us to get. With many such parables... He spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. It is believed that we do have most of the parables in which Jesus explained what the kingdom of God is like. But we understand that that John says we wouldn't be able to have write down all the things that he said, right? I mean, there's not enough books to be able to contain. So we believe there's many parables that he would explain where when he would walk into a situation, he's going, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he would use something in that context to explain what the kingdom of heaven is like. His desire was that we would start to catch a vision. When we put together all of these pictures, a picture of a kingdom in which we would want to be a part of. But again, he says, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. So, with that, I want to show you another section. It's going to be small print again, but it'll blow up in a second. I just want to show you something. This is Matthew 13, 44 through 52. Everywhere where it's orange, this is where Jesus tells another parable, another parable, another parable that says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Again, just in a very short period of time, he would just go from one parable after the next parable after the next parable, trying to say, look, I want you to grasp this. I want you to see this, that this kingdom that I want you to be a part of is, is, is really incredible for us to see. So let's blow one of those up. This is, at, this is the, uh, Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like the treasure hidden in a field, which a man found... And covered up. So let's start packing this out. So you have to understand this parable is not about the field. Okay? It's not about the man. He's trying to explain the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. So let's explain that. Back in the time of Jesus, we don't have necessarily banks or safety deposit boxes, right? And so if you had something of treasure, great value, typically what they would do is they would find a place to hide it. How many of you guys remember being a kid where you would have something that you thought was really valuable, so you would hide it in your backyard and you made a little like what I call pirate map to find it? Did you guys ever do that in the backyard? You know what I'm saying? You're just like, okay, you go five steps out the back door, make a right turn, go behind the doghouse, and then you bury something there. Do you guys ever do those things? Just me? So I, I, I remember making my pirate's map one time, uh, and I dug, and it was actually a bag of marbles, and I thought, I was just, this was my treasure. They were like jewels, diamonds, you guys understand the concept, and I buried them. And I thought it was so great, and I made a map, and, and you know, X marks the spot. My dad just happened to notice this fresh mound of dirt in the backyard kind of a deal, you know what I'm saying, that wasn't there the day before. And so my dad dug them up, you know what I'm saying, so I didn't hide them very well. Does that make sense? But I had a map, you understand, I had a map that took me to where uh, my things were. This truly is what would happen, is that people would have great treasures, and then to have them, they would hide them. Here's the issue that would happen, though. Um, how many of you guys have ever seen the show, like, Storage Wars or Storage Containers War? You've seen that show where people do that. The story of that typically is someone rents a storage container, puts something in it, something happens. Uh, they move away. Sadly, some of them pass away, um, and then that, they stop paying on it, and then someone comes in and sells that. That is what would happen a number of times where someone would go and they didn't tell anybody where they hid this treasure. They would go on a trip and not come back or they would pass away and never tell anybody. And so in doing so, there could be a time in which you could come into a field and you could basically stumble upon a treasure. That is the context of what Jesus is saying. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and, um, and covered it up. So as soon as he finds it, he goes, oh, right? By law, for him to take that treasure, he has to own all the dirt around it. Does that make sense? He's got to do that. So what does he do? Finds it, covers it back up. This next line becomes really powerful. Then in his what? Joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So what happens is, is that we see the concept, when that person found that treasure, that treasure added up to in his mind, there is nothing I have, nothing I have that is as valuable, I will liquidate it all. Can you imagine that? I will, hey, who wants to buy my watch? Who wants to buy my shoes? Who wants to buy my TV? Who wants to buy my car? Who wants to buy my house? Who Literally liquidating everything because what he found, he knew not only would it be of great value? It would replace all of that which he sold. Does that make sense? He's going to get a new house. He's going to get a new car. He's going to get a new TV. He's going to get a new watch. All of that's going to happen. So it was with joy. He's going to anyone going, hey, you want to buy this? Hey, Because he's going, I got to get as much as I can out of what I have to buy this field. Why? Because he knew that what was in that field would be worth far more than whatever he's giving up. That's what he knew. So here's what's interesting. He goes to the man who has the field and he goes, hey, uh, this is everything I have. I want to buy that field. They're like, why would you want to buy that field? There's a bunch of rocks. That, yeah, that's okay. Does he care about the field? No. The field contains the treasure. Everything he's trying to do is get to that treasure. And so in doing so, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. That if you and I were one who stumbled upon this treasure... We would go, anything, everything I have is not worth. I will give it all up to have this. That moment of understanding what that treasure is, that's worth. It goes on. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search for fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now I need to say something to you about pearls in this time. Uh, we think of gold, diamonds, rubies, emeralds. In the time of Jesus, nothing was more precious than pearls. Pearls is at the top. Sorry, there is nothing more precious than pearls. They were that rare, that significant. And if you had pearls, it was amazing. Now here's the difference. Same story. One in the field, one finds the pearl. But what's the difference between the stories? In one, one stumbles upon the treasure. In the second one, what's happening? One is what? Searching for the treasure. And we have a culture where people are searching for something. We watch it. They're searching for value. They're searching for the next thing that's going to give them what they hope they're looking for. They're looking at the next diet. They're looking at the next craze. They're looking at the next candidate. They're looking at whatever it is that they hope is going to be worth it. In both of these stories, the prize is significant. One stumbles upon, one's searching for it. The reaction is the same. When found, everything is sold to purchase it or obtain it. Everything is sold. So what that does is it puts us in this quandary as to do we see the significance of the kingdom of heaven? That is what is the treasure. 
that whatever I have, whatever I think of, is not worth this value. I'm a biological. What that means is I have grown up in church, and there's many of us. I have grown up in church. I cannot remember a time in which I was not in church. My first church experience I can remember going up was in Parker Heights Christian Church in Odessa, Texas. By the way, very straight pews, right? You guys remember the straight pews, right? And, and that, I remember as, even as a little kid, those pews would hurt my back, right? You know, but we were suffering for, for Jesus. You guys are, you're just soft. You're sitting in cushy chairs. You don't even mean it, right? But we weren't even as good as the Catholics because the Catholics, they got on their knees. We weren't going to go to that far. You know what I'm saying? We would sit in the pews. This is back, by the way, when the elders and the lead pastor would have these big throne chairs with velvet cushions and everything, and they would all sit up there all, oh, we should do that again. We should bring those back. Wouldn't that be great? We all sit there looking good. Let's see if the elders want to get on that. But I remember the stained glass windows. By the way, I've said it many times, I was the kid that rung the bell, right? We literally rung the bells to bring the people to church. By the way, if you caught the rope on the upswing, it lifted you off the ground. It was great. I'm a biological. I've grown up in church. This is all I've ever known. Every Sunday being in church. I will tell you, I've been jealous. I've been jealous of those who maybe in teenage years, high school, college, had a radical conversion to Jesus, and I was jealous that they had that radical conversion because I didn't experience that. You know what I found out? They were jealous of me. They were like, I wish I was in church my whole life. I wish I got to see Jesus from day one. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's like women with the curly hair, straight hair thing. The curly hair want the straight hair, and the straight hair want the curly hair. I'm sorry, this is all I understand, right? I don't understand what we have, what we don't like, and it's the way it works. But this is what I know. I, at some point, had to say, he's worth it all. He's worth my life and my family and my kids and my future. The difficulty that we have is that if you saw a pearl and you knew its value, you would go, oh, it's absolutely I'll sell everything. If you sound this treasure and you see its value, you go, absolutely I'll sell everything. The difficulty we have is we look at heaven and we go, is it worth it? Is it worth my future? Would I truly let God have my life? And I will tell you, we put, we're trying to put as many people, even at the equipping conference, in front of you to say, yes, it is worth it. But for so many of us, it's like, truly, I mean, I, 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 mean, I want to have my future. I want to do my thing. And, and if I give it to God, God can mess up my plans. Have you ever had that feeling? God can mess up my plans. If I really love him, he may send me to some far country to be a missionary. I don't want that. Oh, he actually might make me talk to my, to my neighbor. I don't want that. He actually make me ask for forgiveness of people or walk through issues. Or, I don't want that. See, the thing is, is because we don't, I believe, truly understand the treasure. We're not fully grasping the treasure. Those people who have will tell you it was worth giving it all away. They will tell you unabashedly, not tell you it was easy, not tell you that it was a cakewalk. They will just tell you it was worth it, that they gave it all away. But we sit in these moments. I remember I, I told the story before, but, but we've, I had a kid in my high school group that looked at me and goes, man, I love Jesus. I get what you're saying. He died for me. He set me free. But Jeff, it's my senior year. I'm going off to college. I am not going to miss the college experience. So I'm not going to go to church while I'm in college. And once I've had all my fun and done all my things, then I'll come back to Jesus. 
Here's what I love about that story. At least he was honest. Because that's how most of us are. Yeah, I would give it all to Jesus as long as he doesn't really affect my life too much and it doesn't really cost me too many things and it really isn't going to get into my checking account or, or, or get into my future. I'm all good with that. But God comes in and goes, no, 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 it's, it, it's either me, it's all me, it's all me, it's all me. And we go, no, nah, I'm not really ready for that. And I want to say it's because I don't believe we understand the, the treasure of the kingdom of God. We just don't get it. We just don't see it. And, and again, when you get around those people that have just sold it all for him. By the way, what's amazing is we find out when you give it all to him, he gives it back to you in a different way. You give your house to him, and yet he gives it back to you. You get to use it for him, and it's no longer yours, and you see it differently, and you, you handle it differently. In Matthew sixteen twenty five, we have this passage. Many of you know it. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Meaning if you try to hold on to this life, you're going to lose it all. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you will just give it up, give it to me, you'll find a life that I have for you that is richer and fuller. And I want to be one of the people that says to you, it's true. It's true. When you give it to him and you say, God, where do you want to take me? What do you want to do with me? He will take you to experiences that you would have never thought you were going to do on your own. As good as you thought your life was going to be, he can make it better, more fulfilled, more deep. I promise you that. But it comes with this part as we go up a verse to verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny myself? I don't want to deny myself a donut. Are you kidding? Deny myself? And Jesus goes, no, but when you deny yourself and you lose this part where you're in control, you get so much more. But it is a cost. That cross says there is a cost. But again, if you find this treasure, you say, God, let me have it. Let me walk in that. As we talk about the kingdom of God, I want to say to you that here is Jesus trying through with parables to say the kingdom of God is like, the kingdom of God is like, and he's trying to say, listen, if you found the treasure, I'm telling you, if you would see it, if you could understand it, you would sell it all for him because what you would get is far more. I think the fear is, our fear is we sell it all, we get nothing. That's not what it says. If you sell it all, you get it all back plus Not for you to own, but you get to see the riches of that. I'm going to share with you a quote. It's one of my favorite books. It's one of the very first books I read when I went to Bible college. It's a book called The Church on Purpose. It's not the purpose-driven church. It's called The Church on Purpose. Um, and it's really just a very simple book. It just talks about what, again, what's the purpose of the church when, when we do these things? And, and this quote is in this book. And, it, and when I remember when I first I read it the first time, I was just blown away by it. I'm going to read to you. Now, you're going to see spaces and gaps. I specifically put them there so that you can fill them in with whatever's in your mind. At the end, I will tell you what those gaps are. But I want you to hear the passion in the heart of this author. We blank have a high casualty rate. We're the ones who get shot, hung, lynched, tarred and feathered, jailed, slandered, fired from our jobs, and in every way made as uncomfortable uncomfortable as possible. We, um, a certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the, 
Every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep alive. We don't have time or money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes or new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives dominated by one great overshadowing factor to struggle for. We have a philosophy of life which no amount of money can buy. We have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. If our personal lives seem hard or our egos appear to suffer through the subordination too, then we are, an adequate, we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in a small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There is one thing for which I am dead earnest, and that is the, it is my life, my business, my hobby, my sweetheart, my bread, my meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship or even a conversation without relating to, to the force, to this force, which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the, and by their attitude toward it. I am ready. I'm already in jail because of my ideas, and if necessary, I'm ready to go before a firing squad. You cannot read that without having somebody who, by the way, sold everything for that field. Do you guys hear that? And I would love to tell you that's a church or a missionary. It's not. We communists have a high casualty rate. We are the ones who get shot. This is by by a young man in Mexico City. We are the ones who get shot, hung, lynched, tarred and feathered, jailed, slandered, fired on from our jobs, and in every way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party. Every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep alive. We don't have time for or money for many movies or or concerts or T-bone steaks or to have decent homes or new cars. We have been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by the one great overshadowing factor of the struggle for communism. I'm not going to read you the rest of it. But this young man in Mexico City was like, it's everything. The Communist Party. There's one section I want us to look at again, though. It's this one. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship or even a conversation without relating it to this force which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. Every book, every conversation is filtered by this. I would love that it would say this. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship or even a conversation without relating it to this force which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the kingdom and by their attitude toward it. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found the treasure in the field and sold everything to have it. This is bigger than church. It's about your life. It's about what you do. It's about what you have and where you go and what you see that he is above and every conversation and every book and every movie is affected by what this does for the kingdom. I told you I'd bring you back to this passage. 
We ran through it at the beginning. I'm read, we'll go back. This is another parable about the kingdom of God. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? He says, it's like a grain of mustard seed, which is when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out a large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. This is Jesus speaking about the kingdom of heaven pre-crucifixion. Acts 2, 1 through 12. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, all together. At most, it would have been around 100 people, 100 disciples of, of Jesus. By the way, at any time, even in the time of Jesus or the time now, 100 people compared to the number of people on the earth is a mustard seed. It's a small group. Tiny. So let's not say it's the 100. Let's say it's the 12. The 12 apostles. They're a mustard seed. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Let's jump down to verse 6. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? There's just not a mustard seed of the number of them. They're from Galilee. Verse 8. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We, are, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Verse 12. And we are all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? This mustard seed called the apostles was planted. Peter gets up and begins to preach, says, you killed the Messiah. At the end of that, 3,000 come to Christ that day. And then the scriptures go on to say that the Lord added to their number daily. That mustard seed, that kingdom of heaven, that small group has grown and grown and grown and has literally gone around the world and has affected almost every nation on this planet to the point that, yes, it has grown so large that the birds can rest in its branches. And yes, that mustard seed of those 12 men on that day has grown to Newark, California at Cedars Church where you are sitting here today hearing of what happened out of that mustard seed. That is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And we have a desire to have mustard seeds of home churches. We have a desire to have mustard seeds of small groups. We have a desire to have mustard seeds of you reaching into your inner circle. And if we believe that, lives can be transformed. Because the kingdom of heaven means that something so small and so insignificant becomes so great that the birds land in its branches. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what shall we use it? uh, Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. My hope and my prayer from this message is that we would all, whether you came in and stumbled upon it Or you are searching for it. Find that there is something of such great value. 
that it is worth everything that you have, that you would give it all up to have it. And I want to say to you that when you do, you're not giving up, you're actually gaining. And he wants to pour into you richly, and he wants to pour into you mightily, and he wants to tell you how great this kingdom is. And then we start to see this world as it is, and we start to realize this is not our home that we're only passing through, that what we're looking for is where our treasure is, where we have put it up in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, that we get to be a part of something that started out so small and yet is so significant. His parables of what he said the kingdom of heaven is like are coming true. And they can come true in your life. They can come true in your heart. But we have a God that says, look, I want to tell you what the kingdom of God is like. And by the way, you can go through and just do a search. Any of your Bible apps, do a search. The kingdom of heaven is like. And start reading the parables where he tries to tell you. Next week, we're going to be looking at the Beatitudes where he talks about what happens with the kingdom. There are all these passages where he's going, look, I just want you to grasp this. You want to be where the kingdom of heaven is. The rest of these kingdoms are going to burn. Because I'm telling you, there are nations nations that came against Christianity. Those nations have come and gone, and yet that plant that was planted by those 12 men on Pentecost Sunday still is here. Still here. My hope and prayer for all of us is that we would see the value of the treasure. Stop playing around. Say, God, I, I get rid of all of this because of you. And then be amazed at what he does. Be amazed of what's going to take place. We want you to come to the equipping conference so you can hear other people there just telling you, this is what I did, and hear their stories and be encouraged. Because he wants to do more than we can ask and imagine. Let me pray. Heavenly Father. You are such a good God. And we think this earth, and I get it, we we think what is happening here and now on this earth and the people that are around us, we think this is the goal, and it's not. This is the field. (laughs) This is the field. What's important is the treasure. Yes, we can buy the field, but what, what we want is in the treasure. And then, Father, we're blown away to understand that your son gave up everything to purchase us with his blood. He purchased us. He saw the value of us and sold it all for us, taking our sin upon himself. Heavenly Father, help us see the truth in your word today. Help us to step towards it, lean into it, and grasp it. The Father, you are worth it all. You are truly worth it all. And I just give this to you in this time. In Jesus' name, his beautiful name.